Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all up to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18 plus. Subscription required. T's and C's apply. Oh, I love being a black female director. And I really, oh, I, love I really, really, really love the label. <laughs> love that. Because I think the, the label is important. Because I know, like, there was a lot of stuff like, women directors. And they're like, I just want to be a director. I totally get it. But for me, I'm like, I want to be a black female director who makes all these kinds of movies. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices, and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. Hello, I'm Zowie Ashton, and I'm your brand new presenter for season four of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that speaks to women with lives as inspiring as any good fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. My guest today is the award-winning screenwriter and filmmaker Nia DaCosta. Her debut feature film, Little Woods, which she wrote and directed, won her the Nora Ephron Prize at the Tribeca Film Festival and her spiritual sequel of the classic 90s horror film Candyman was released earlier this year to critical acclaim, making Nia the first black female director to open top of the commercial box office on opening weekend. She's a self-confessed comic book nerd, and she's now been welcomed happily into the bosom of the Marvel Universe. She's in the middle of shooting The Marvels, the follow-up to Captain Marvel, when we speak. I'm deeply passionate about connecting with new filmmaking talent like Nia, whether there's a project in the works or not. And Nia and I first met over Zoom when our agents connected us right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we actually bonded over Jane Austen's Persuasion, a novel that makes it onto her list today. We've kept in touch ever since and she's an artist I'm just so proud to know. She's an author with an agenda and at only 32 she is already making huge waves and cracking open this notoriously tough industry. This is Nia DaCosta. You are so many firsts. Oh my god. You're a lot. You are the first black woman director to debut a film at the top of the box office with Candyman earlier this year, end of the summer. Yeah. I just want to sit with that for a moment. (laughs) Have you had a second whilst you've been filming Mm. another huge juggernaut, which is the follow-up to Captain Marvel, The Marvels? Mm. Have you had a moment to sit with that thought and that fact? And have you had a moment to sit with the fact and the thought that you are also the youngest and first black woman to direct a Marvel movie, full stop? (laughs) You know what's crazy? Like, I finished Candyman, had two weeks off, and I started the Marvels. And I have been just, like, in prep and shooting and not... Really, I guess. like, and, and, and part of me doesn't really even know what that means to, like, sit with or process. or I think in part because, like, this is my third film in four years, The Marvels. So everything feels like it's just sort of happening <laughs> really quickly. And I'm at a stage now where I'm sort of just like, okay, I need a second to, to stop and not have anything to do, actually. Which is so against my, like, hustler spirit. You have a hustler you know? spirit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just come from growing up, like, with no money. <laughs> Not no money. My mom would be so annoyed if I said that, but, like, <laughs> she's just like, bitch, please. <laughs> um, but it's, like, not with a lot and wanting more and wanting a career that I knew was hard and having a mother who's an artist, who you know, she, my mom's a singer, and her being super real about, like, listen, you should totally pursue the arts, but you're going to be broke <laughs> and it's going to be hard. But she also always said, like, the money will come. So just do what you know you need to do that's staying true to what you want to do and not like take things for money and blah 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 and I was like okay mom and she was right so but I think I, now I need to chill the fuck out 
That's so interesting to hear about your mum's influence. Because mm. your mum was kind of a big deal. She was in a great band. She, yeah, my mom was in a reggae girl group called um, Morla Girl. And so when I was growing up in the 90s, like she was like touring and doing stuff. And, you know, they did the uh, theme song for Cool Runnings back in the day, the Jamaican bobsled chant. She's really fascinating, my mom. She's had so many lives, I feel like. But like her passion is singing, but she's so good at a lot of things, as I think a lot of brilliant women are. And she's just out in these streets, like doing the thing. Like I really watched her and learned a lot from her in terms of how tenacious she is and how she just goes for what she wants. She follows her passion. And so I've always felt I had the permission, the ability to do that. As someone who has a mother who is has an immigrant story mm. too, I know your mother yeah. hails from Jamaica yeah. and moved to New York when you were... When she was 19. When she was 19. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that is also a component of someone's hustler spirit, that actually that, that drive also comes from mm. having to assimilate or mm. I think so I think definitely there's such a com- like I'm a first generation American and I think there's such a commonality of the immigrant experience in in America and also in the UK of really needing to find your place like you came here for a reason and you came here to do something and I think there's an activation in you I don't know yeah and I think that really spreads to your children as well and I so I certainly you know my dad's also my dad is from here and he went to America when he was 13. And of course, that's like coming with his parents and a different energy. But, you know, still, there's this energy of like, we're here to do something. We're here to create a life. We're here to to, to do better, make better. And so I think I definitely feel that energy from my mom. And I definitely kind of put that into my own way of pursuing my, my career and my interests. Because something people might not know about you yet is you are an unbelievable Anglophile. <laughs> and I, I kind of hate that word in a way. I mean, you just really are very attuned to British culture Mm-mm. in a way that I think we'll see as we move through your choices. There does seem to me to be a dual British and American identity to your art. Am I mm. picking up on something that's me projecting? Honestly, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And, I, and it's something I wouldn't have ever thought about in those terms, but I think it's definitely true. I think part of it is that, you know, being from a Jamaican family, it's like I used to jokingly say, like, you know, my family was like peripherally British because like there's definitely this like sort of immigration story for people in the Caribbean, for Jamaicans in particular, being a former British colony. I think there's that ever present energy in my my family. When I was younger, I definitely had like a much more diverse family than I really thought about. It's just interesting. It, it just, I just took for granted, I guess, the the Jamaicanness and the Britishness and the Americanness. And to me, it was just an experience. It was just life. It wasn't really anything I could like glean from either thing. When I look back on particular things, I'm like, my family really loved tea. <laughs> my mom gets really serious about what tea bags you use. So. PG tips or Yorkshire gold, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like little like things are obviously so superficial, but it's really interesting. Or just like the ever presence of like Princess Diana. Like my grandmother loved Princess Diana, but I think that's also consistent for like a lot of black aunties who <laughs> live in Princess in the UK. Diana. I don't know why. <laughs> black auntie. Thank yeah. you, Nia DeCosta, for being the first person <laughs> I know to publicly make this. Tenuous in other people's minds. Yeah. Connection. It's a, it's a whole vibe. It's a whole thing. Yeah. But it's something that I really am, um, again, completely took for granted. But then my, my grandmother, who had Princess Diana's like picture in her house, and when she died, I remember like the house went dark. Like I remember it was just like, oh my God, what happened? And I thought we knew her. Because <laughs> I, when I, I was like seven or something when she passed, and I was like, did our friend die? Like, it was like, no, that's Princess Diana, who we do not know. Um, <laughs> But I remember when um, Meghan, Markle, and Harry got married, and I was like, wow, I think my grandma would have been really into this whole thing, like this mixed-race black woman and her her favorite royal's favorite son. (laughs) Or not favorite son, but, you know, like the favorite son of her favorite royal marrying a mixed-race black woman and having this black-ass wedding. You know, like, God, that was a long way of saying, yes, there is an Anglo... Like influence to, to my work, the way I see the world, the way I move through it, I guess, as well. You have these incredible lineages and you also grew up in probably one of the richest communities in New York City, which is Harlem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'm wondering how literature or story mm. played a part in your life and in your formative life with all of these yeah. rich influences that you had in your in your blood and in your household. Um, I'm, I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. Like, was escapism for me. Um, loved, 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 loved reading. Could, would read in the car if I didn't get car sick. I would actually even try. Like, I was always reading. And my mother, also lover of the English language, voracious reader. So I'd always very precociously be, like, grabbing the adult books off, off the shelves in my house. Then after my parents got divorced um, when I was nine, my mom, she was finishing college, and so she got her um, English degree. And um, I would just, like, grab her books, grab her books. So, like, a couple of the books that, like I mentioned today, are, like, from things she was reading in, in college when I was, like, 11. <laughs> wow. Um, I think it was hugely important for me in terms of my just development and also, like, my emotional escape from, like, you know, divorced parents and various unpleasantness that just happens in life, you know. So it was, it was hugely important to me. You also were a, a boarder at high school. What was that like as well? Did that sort of intensify the veracity of your reading or of your studying? You're literally one of the smartest women I've ever oh, met. And, um, <laughs> and sometimes you are like an, an encyclopedia to me. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you. Very generous. Thank you. Um, uh, boarding school was, I mean, I was always just like a fucking nerd. <laughs> um, like literally when I was younger, I'd be like, oh, a science textbook, you know, like what, like what's wrong with me? Um, but boarding school was a, a mix of like, my parents got divorced and my mom was hugely like into education. She knew how important that was for like, and again, it's like partially a Jamaican thing, partially an immigrant thing. It's like, how do you transcend where society wants you to be um, as an immigrant, as a person of color, as a black person. And my mother, for my mother, it was education, period, end of story. And so my education was amazing. And I, like some of my favorite books I've read in school um, and talked about in school. And, and I loved not just reading a book, but also like peeling it back the layers and, and getting into it. Like um, uh, As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner was, I read in eighth, ninth grade, I think, ninth grade. Wow. And I remember just being like, whoa, like, uh, books, you know? I was like, goodness, this is, like... And I read a lot before then, but I was like, this is so stunning, you know? And, and I had these moments in my life where I'm, like, in school reading a book, and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is actually what I want to do, is, like, be inside these stories in any way possible. Yeah, you have a lot of time when you're a kid. You don't really have to do anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, but it's it's a great place to talk about your first book choice, oh, bless. which is Circle of Magic by Tamora Pierce. Mm. This is a quartet of fantasy novels set in Emelan, a fictional realm in a pseudo-medieval and renaissance era, and it revolves around four young mages. Mages, yeah. Mages. Gathers out there. Mages. Uh... Your circle <laughs> of magic, right, girl? <laughs> and they are their female Sorcerers, but they learn to control their powers and put them to really interesting uses throughout the, the four books. Mm. I also read that Tamora had written these novels as an escape from her parents' divorce. Mm. Did you know that? I didn't know that actually. Tell me about your first encounter with these with these novels. I remember reading so that Triss's book is second of the four, and I remember reading that first because I don't know why. I did that with like Harry Potter too. I read like the third one first, and I was like, "Oh, there's a, a situation. There's like a, a an order, <laughs> you know." But with with Circle of Magic, I just picked it up. Like this is one that like I feel like now we live in a culture of like, what's the best version of the the thing I want? Like, what's the best book to read right now? What's the best new book? As opposed to just like, oh, here's a book on the shelf. Let me see what that's about. And I was younger. I was really about that. I was like, oh, I just want to. It's a book, so it must be worthwhile in some way. <laughs> it's a story, so mm-hmm. it must have something to say. And so I just picked it up. I think it was at my friend's house, maybe. And I read it. And escapism, it's just like, oh, I'm in this whole world. I love something with a lot of world building and and specificity. And the book had that. And, and I love just, especially at the time when I read it, I think it was 11 or 12, like, girls and magic. And I always joke, like, every girl goes to, like, a Wiccan stage. It's so true. And I think it coincides with when we realize that we don't have as much control for our lives and our bodies and our destinies as we thought because the structure of the world (laughs) like starts to become apparent and it's sort of like a pushing against that it's like wait no 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 no. like and there's so many ways we as people like try to get control of our lives or feel like we're in control like 
from like astrology, you know, which is like kind of magical thinking. Like wanting to be like, oh, you're this sign, so this, I'm going to read this, so I know what's happening today. It's like the more out of control we feel, the more we like try to hold on to these things. And I think magic, I mean, it's so magical, isn't it? It's just like the yeah. idea that you can you can have that power, that control, and also that there's a community inside of that too, I think is very appealing, especially as a young girl. So when I read this, I was definitely in that space of like, oh my God, I wish I were magical. I wish I could, you know, be a part of this circle of magic. I want to be friends with these people. Like, And I it was a really nice that. place to escape to. I love that connection that you've just made, particularly and specifically about women and young girls and the relationship to mag- magic mm. or um, sorcery. Mm. And what you're saying has just reminded me <laughs> of that time when I think we'd all just started to have sleepovers, we must have all just started to have our periods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And every single time we got together as a young female community, it was about trying to summon, like, the dead or, like, <laughs> communicate. Yeah. Or light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light, of, light as a feather, stiff as yeah. a board. We're trying to, like, lift our friends with our two fingers and they're all screaming when actually, you know, <laughs> oh, my God, they yeah. rose, like, an inch off the ground. Nothing was happening. Yeah. And that place of fantasy is mm. so deeply strong at that time. Yeah. But I've never thought about it as a way of... I've always thought about it in my mind as being, like, a hysterical young girl. Mm-hmm. I've never framed it as being a way of me actually trying to gain some sort of sense of control yeah. over my experience. I think it's a bit of a rebellion in a way, in, in ways. Like, because it's really, it's really scary being just a human in the world, being a child, and then learning what it means to be a girl, learning what it means to be a black girl. Like, you're like, whoa, input overload, you know? Because what you're hearing is like, you don't have control over all of this stuff, all this history, all of this. And you're just like, I just got here. What? Like, yeah. <laughs> can we slow down the train? And it's like, no. And so I think you find these ways to, like, escape, which is, you know, reading Circle of Magic, or to, like, find your control agency. I mean, you could not be putting any more of this early reading to good use right now in your newest role (laughs) as the director of The Marvels, (laughs) which is three incredibly powerful women Mm. doing what Marvel does best, which is harnessing their powers, working together, Mm. creating change. Mm. You have one of the most diverse casts in the universe right now, and they are all women. Do you think there is a direct correlation here? I mean, you you are a self confessed Marvel geek, but I can't help but tracking it back to Tamora. <laughs> Tamora, what has she done? I would say, like, I think another big theme in my life has definitely been like the family you choose, mm. and so something about this is also very much the family you choose, like uh, Circle of Magic books, and so you know, the books that I love, these books about magic and everything, they're always about this group, these groups of people trying to do something amazing and needing each other to do it. So. Um, yeah, I think there is. I never thought about that, but yeah, I think there is definitely a connection. I'm so excited for you to not only be doing this all-female, all-representational piece of work in the Marvel Universe, but also to be creating an aspirational mm. genre with all of those layers. Right, yeah. Yeah. Because we weren't there, and we haven't been in space. Oh my God, yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. I remember like... It could be black like, people on the moon. Hello. I know, you know what I mean? It's really, or just like, I don't know, there's this really funny like onion like headline from like 15 years ago or something that I always think about. I think I saw it when I was in college and it was like, woman um, forgets she's a feminist so she can enjoy literally any television show. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and that's how I feel a lot of the time. Like as a woman of color, I'm just like, growing up, we had to just, like, shut down so much stuff just to, like, laugh at a movie or just to, like, have anything that's watchable that's not triggering, you know? And and I think now we're in a place where everyone's like, oh, shit, like, let's tell these stories, tell these stories. I think it's a very many-layered thing. Our presence as storytellers, our increased presence as storytellers in a very white industry. But there is something really fun and good and interesting and necessary about creating an aspirational space that's also really grounded in, in humanity. Mm. Because for me, like, the aspirational isn't necessarily what I think we 
does happen sometimes where it's like, okay, black people rich and black people this and, you know, or people of color doing this or women just as strong as the men, you know. It's yeah. more aspirational in the sense of like your full humanity is like going to be presented here. Mm. And that's what all we want from you, you know, like mm. as opposed to like you need to be this representation of X or this or this role model. Mm. But more so like let's see what the future looks like. And it's yeah. not just going to be all white dudes with phasers or you know like yeah. it's gonna be much more interesting and I think same thing with historical drama like there's something very even though so much of them are about like isolation and especially if they center women like around like sexism and whatnot but they're mm. always from a very specific point of view mm. and they're always like so beautiful and like lush and the locations and the dress and all that stuff so it's weirdly aspirational too in that way yeah so but like cracking into that's something I'm really interested in because I love period dramas, but there's so much more, so many more layers to get at yeah. there that we just haven't seen. I honestly want to thank you, not only for what you've just said and how it's really kind of resonated for me, but and I'm sure for our listeners, but for being at the forefront of mm. creating art that will allow my children not to have to shut off a part of themselves mm -hmm. to yeah. enjoy. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you. And I'm. it's just so interesting. It's so much of what I wanted to do when I was getting into the industry was tell stories that I loved and have fun and, and work with great people and, you know, create a space like that where our kids could watch things that they're not like, okay, I'm turning off my, like, who I am to, yeah. to be able to just exist. And it's so interesting doing that in this system because what you're asked to do so much of the time is to kind of slip into the same grooves. Mm. And I think you, you come across that in any respect. Like, I definitely felt that, especially with a movie like Candyman, you know, which is, like, about, like, black trauma and racial violence and really a space that I never really thought I would work in in that way. Mm. It's interesting. I'm really proud of the movie, and I'm really glad we told the story, and I'm really happy I have the opportunity to tell a, another version of a movie that I fucking love. But, um... It is interesting, though, where we're asked to go as creators of color. And the Marvels has been really interesting because I haven't felt that really at all. Like, mm. haven't felt like, oh, this is about women, so we have to make sure we do this. Or, or there's a Pakistani-American and, and, and a black American woman who are with this white woman. Like, we have to figure out how to... It's always just been like, tell your story and let's honor yeah. who they are, but not let's not tokenize them. And that's mm. been really important to me. We work in such a strange industry. <laughs> I think we should talk about someone else who's pretty great mm -hmm. at the old descriptions and the and the details and the putting together of the words. And that is your second bookshelfy choice, which is Mrs. Dalloway mm. by Virginia Woolf. Yeah. It's just such an excellent novel. We are following, for anyone who hasn't read it, the details of the day in the life of Clarissa Dalloway, a fictional high society woman in post-First World War England. It is one of Wolfe's best-known novels. The working title uh, of Mrs Dalloway was actually The Hours and mm. one of the probably most best-known iterations of this novel on film is called The Hours mm. and it's directed by Stephen Daldry and stars Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf herself and Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore as two women affected by the novel. Talk to me about why you chose this. So Mrs. Dalloway was one of the novels that I studied in high school. And um, I was just really struck by two things. One, just the prose, just the craft. Mm. I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, parentheses, long sentences. Whoa. Like, <laughs> stream of consciousness. What is happening? <laughs> and then just the content, like watching these people trying to find their purpose and their happiness and in this world that for all of them in different ways man woman like that's so claustrophobic like they were clearly all trapped even the people that you would assume had had more power than the other and I found that so fascinating and tragic and heartbreaking and um the way she writes like and it's so interesting I didn't know that the original title working title was the hours I didn't know mm. that but when you think about that and you have, like, the motif of the bell tolling throughout the, the book. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. And it's actually even, even more melancholy. Yeah. Idea. Oh, my God. My heart breaks again. <laughs> Thinking about all those characters. But um, there was one bit of the novel that really stuck with me. 
one of the characters, who's this guy who's clearly is really unhappy. I, th- I think he's the guy married to Clarissa. I yes. think, yeah, Clarissa's husband, who like <laughs> knows that Clarissa's like, eh, I'm not really into you. Um, <laughs> and he's walking around, and even though he got what he wanted, right? He married this woman he wanted to marry. Clearly, he's not happy, and then he ends up like kind of following this random woman that he sees. I think she's like a beautiful young woman. Yeah. And the way he follows her is so not like, yeah, I'm trying to get that. But it was just sort of like a moment, this ephemeral moment. And he says, or he thinks to himself, happiness is this. Happiness is this, is this. Blew my 16 or 17-year-old mind. I was like, whoa. It's so interesting. This book I read uh, in The New Yorker was a go-to for anxious readers in the early days of the pandemic and lockdown because the famous opening of this novel, as you know, is Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, Mm. right? And the characteristic way throughout the novel that Clarissa Dalloway basically makes everyday shopping a really high-stakes adventure was resonating (laughs) highly (laughs) with the lockdown reader. And, of course, I was reminded as I was remembering the book and knowing we were going to talk about it today that it's set in 1923, five years on from the global influenza pandemic. Mm -hmm. And Clarissa Dalloway is a survivor I also found out something about Virginia Woolf's life that makes so much sense of her writing now for me, which is her mother died of heart failure brought on by influenza Mm. in 1895, another epidemic. And it was her mother's death that brought on one of the first nervous breakdowns that Virginia Woolf had, which I just Mm. feel like is always present in her writing. Yeah. This, like... This mental health, ill health. Mm-hmm. The fragility. The of, fragility, yeah. the betrayal of the body and the mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a New Yorker. You must sense sometimes that there is this wonderful, busy metropolis around you, but actually mm-hmm. sometimes just a sense of <laughs> slight dread mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. every day of something imagined I, or real. I don't think I ever really engaged with that reality growing up like like literally I grew up in the city and I love New York and it's amazing but it's also like an impossible city I don't think it's normal I don't think we should be living like that mm-hmm. honestly I, and I love a city <laughs> like but and I love New York it's I think it's amazing but um I mean I used to get like followed home by like men randomly you know every so often from when I was like 11 you know and and I grew this like shell where I wouldn't like look anyone in the eye because when you're on the train and someone's a little crazy, you look them in the eye. That's like it's like it's an invitation, or or just being a woman or a girl and like people being like, "How old are you? Are you 18 yet?" You know, like. And so, you know, there are parts of me that like kind of grieve the the more open version of me. You know, that might have existed if I didn't live in a in a city like New York. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I at all when I was in the midst of it, feeling like any of that was weird or ridiculous mm. but I feel like people like Virginia Woolf who you know obviously struggling with, with mental health and obviously disposed to anxiety and depression like mm. and I know like having been in an anxious space before which isn't my normal state so I'm always just like if that ever happens I'm like whoa what's happening you know mm. but mm. you really are like vibrating on another frequency and like picking up on different things and so her entire life was like picking up on actually how fucking insane the way we live is yeah um and I think that's what is so interesting about this book because it really cracks open like the quotidian unhappiness of like the way we've decided to organize our society. It's like she kind of illustrates this like in- inevitable unhappiness. Yes. Inside of how we've decided to organize our society. And in the book, the only escape, the admirable m- escape in the book is suicide. Yeah. Which obviously we all know Virginia Woolf eventually ended up ending her own life, mm. which is horrible and sad and but it's an interesting sort of window into that experience yeah but it being such an interesting window into this very specific woman's experience it also is a window into our own experiences that like the the parts of us that are a little bit like each of those characters yeah but I was 16 when I read this I was like whoa (laughs) I would love to take that inevitable unhappiness (laughs) And and the strength and fragility of uh, of another brilliant heroine and segue mm. into your what was going to be your fourth, but I'm going to move it up because we're in Love this it. conversation. Mm. 
your third bookshelf your choice, which is Persuasion by Jane Austen. I yes. think, you know, I mean, <laughs> Love her. Virginia, Jane, there is a brilliant quote from this book, which is, I am half agony, half hope. Mm. And that feels like it covers all of these, all of the women <laughs> we we're talking about that yes. we're interested in right so now. Yeah, so this was, of course, the, 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 the quietly radical last novel mm. uh, from Jane Austen. It was printed in 1817, which was six months after her death. Mm. We follow 27-year-old Anne Elliot. Austin's actually most adult heroine at 27 and, and unmarried. Crazy. She is a Regency-era spinster. Wow. Elizabeth Bennet was 25, right? She was, she, yes, I think she was about 25, which is still quite senior. That's interesting, yeah. yeah um, so Anne, as opposed to Elizabeth, has a little bit more, again, of our favourite melancholic spirit. Mm-hmm. Eight years before the story begins, she's happily betrothed to a naval officer, Frederick Wentworth, but breaks off the engagement when persuaded by her friend Lady Russell that the match is unworthy all the tension of the novel revolves around one question. Will Anne and Wentworth be reunited mm. in their thwarted love? Oh my God, I love it. Why has this book made it to your list? Well, I love a rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely love romantic comedies. Me too. I think I came into like rom-com love through Jane Austen. Which is very strange. Like again, my so my mother was reading Pride and Prejudice in in college, and that was one of the books. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll pick it up. I'll check it out. See what's going on here. And I was like, oh, this will they won't they? All of her books have this like romantic sort of will they won't they thing, but mm. this one in particular is this sort of like you watched Anne Elliot being put in this box the whole book, and mm. her family like does not respect her. Her sister is the worst. Her dad is oblivious, <laughs> um, and she's sort of just like shit on. Yeah. And she's underappreciated and and people really just discount her. Even Lady Russell, who is a friend, just like sort of sees her as a, a pet in, in some ways you can mm. read, you know? Mm. Even though clearly she loves her, but it's just very like condescending and, and you really want her to be happy so much, you know? Like like when you read Elizabeth Bennet, you're like, oh, you are that bitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? You got this. <laughs> you are, you're good. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. It doesn't work out with him. <laughs> you'll be good. <laughs> But you're right. You, with those two, you think you'll be okay. You'll be fine. Yeah. With Anne, we're just not sure. I'm like Anne, dear God, she's drowned. Yeah, <laughs> and that captain seems like a real hottie too. So he really does. I'm like, girl, you better lock it down. Right as fast as you can. Quickly get the quill, get the ink, and that shit you put on the paper so the ink dries or whatever the fuck. <laughs> get it done. Get it. Get the rubber stamp. Exactly. Get the message. Put that sealer. Um, <laughs> I also love in the novel how, like, she basically, like, sees him write the letter but doesn't know what he, that he's writing the letter to her. It's heartbreaking. It's like, he's, like, furiously writing, do you love me? Oh, my God. It's like, bitch, of course she does. Like, get it together. Like, it's like, you're rich now, motherfucker. <laughs> that part of it actually, again, is why I feel like the book is quietly radical mm-hmm. because it's him that has to kind of mm-hmm. become worthy yeah. of... Her and of mm-hmm. course he's always worthy, even with no yeah, money, yeah, no yeah. status. It's a slight reverse yeah. way of, of telling these these as you say, these like ancient rom coms. Yeah, yeah. It's great. I wonder when stories for you then turned into pictures. Like you you clearly yeah. inhaled stories mm. in your formative years. And and when did that become actually I want to structure images to tell the stories I want to tell? I think the earliest time I can remember understanding that film was like an art medium as opposed to just an entertainment medium was when I was 11, I think. And I was watching um, a couple of movies, all of which I should not have been watching because of my age. American <laughs> Beauty <laughs> had the VHS in my house. I was going to say, we are the VHS generation. Yes. And so if we had a chair, mm-hmm. we could wa- we could watch it because we could reach the top exactly. shelf. We didn't need the passcodes. Yeah, we didn't need the parental lock or whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> you know what I mean? But also because it's VHS, like if you had it in your house, you just watched it over and over again. Yeah. And um, I watched that movie so many times. <laughs> had no idea what was going on. But I was so drawn into like the imagery and the direction and the acting and I didn't know exactly what it was. I know knew the acting. I was like, oh, acting. I get that. That mm. is talented acting. That's good. Mm. And that Benning, stunning. You know, stunning. like, I get that. Oh, and then also um, Full Metal Jacket was another one. And so, in the summers, I'd just be home, like, 
booping away watching VHSs and, and, and HBO. <laughs> and I think that's when I was like, oh, shit. And then by the time I got to, like, 16, I was, like, really into the idea of, like, oh, I want to direct movies. Mm-hmm. I thought I wanted to be an actor at first because that's what I understood first. I'm like, they're the ones I see, you know? Mm. And even, like, into, like, my early 20s, I was like, oh, is that cute? And then I was like, that's not cute for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mustn't do this. Well, yeah. it's important to say you are a writer-director. You have mm-hmm. been involved at script level on all three of your films. Yeah. And it's a really important distinction to make, I think, yeah. because you are essentially living and breathing every element of that story coming to life. You're mm. the reason why it's happening as the writer. And right. then you're the person to sort of take it to its absolute zenith. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it is a bit <laughs> crazy. You're just with something for so long, especially when you, like, as the own, like, my first film, the only writer and director it's like on this movie the marvels and on Candyman, like there were there was a script before i got involved mm. but you really are just like page to screen to edit to like you know it's like woof it's really a journey do you get attracted to novels in the same way that you get attracted to films i think i like the same kinds of books and movies mm. I just want a good story and I want good like to learn about people mm. and I think in that sense I do approach them the same and I'm the same way like when I want like escapism like really easy something I'll pick up a rom-com novel or I'll watch a rom-com like last night I spent 45 minutes trying to find a rom-com I like haven't seen and <laughs> that I was interested in love that did you find it yeah so I just was I was like you know what I should do not English so I said French rom-coms and there are a couple of really good ones that I'm like looking forward to watching tonight <laughs> I have read you oftentimes say in interviews, you know, that you you just want to make great story Mm. and whatever way that happens is whatever way it happens. But you are definitely interested in the in-between spaces Mm. of society and the unconventionality of our Mm. existence. I would say that's reflected in your book choices today. (laughs) No, actually, I, I would say, like, um, that's absolutely true. And, I mean, even just, like, growing up as, like, a black girl who went to predominantly white schools but lives in a predominantly black neighborhood, there's sort of in-betweeniness to that as well. Maybe not in-between is the right word, but because it kind of suggests this, like, binary that I don't really think exists between black and white, yeah. even though that's how we kind of approach that. There's, like, an interesting sort of searching, I think, this searching for your place thing that happens in that respect. But also, and I think in, in a lot of the stories that, of the books that we are bringing out, like like Circle of Magic, it's like these kids are like figuring out who the fuck they are yeah. in a world that they don't really understand and with this this power, this force within them that they're trying to, to control. And Mrs. Dalloway, the guy who has um PTSD, like clearly he's like in a way on the fringes, mm. you know. But then you have this various this woman Clarissa and and Peter and they're very much like of society. Yeah. But they're clearly just like spiritually not. They're like in their own fringe. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And um, I always find that really interesting. And I'm really interested in people who are ignored or the experiences, the ignored experiences of people that we think we know, or like like the ignored parts of history. And usually for me, it's like women and people of color not existing in yeah. before 1992. And. <gasps> You know I mean? We came in with Will Smith. I know, right? <laughs> Literally, they're like, oh, Will Smith was the first black. And so. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, especially in England, I'm like, you guys are delusional. They're like, well, we got the wind rush, and that's when all the black people got here. And I'm like, ma'am. <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> Sir. Please. Let me just get, get my Google Maps out. Yeah. I'm like, on many museum. <laughs> it's so crazy. I'm like, it's so interesting. There's been, like, a consistent and strong... I'm going to talk specifically about black people because that's where we are now. But a specific and strong black presence in this country for hundreds of years. Yeah. Hundreds. And it's like, let's all get it together. Yeah. (laughs) The podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream, or paired with your favourite book. 
Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be a part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by supporting our charitable programmes for writers and readers. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. I think this brings us on mm. to your fourth bookshelfie, which is The Bread Givers oh my God, by Anzia Yazerska. This is such an incredibly fascinating novel. I have not read this novel, but for anyone who hasn't read it too, I'll just summarize. It's a 1925 three-volume novel by Jewish-American author Anzia Yazerska. It's the story of a young girl growing up in an immigrant Jewish household in the Lower East Side of New York City. Her parents are from Poland. This is a semi autobiographical work. Mm. Uh, Anzia and her own family emigrated from Poland to the US and settled on the Lower East Side. It's an incredible insight into the meaning of liberation for immigrants mm. and particularly Jewish immigrant women. Yeah. What did you particularly love about this book? So it's another book that my mother was reading in college. <laughs> your mum needs to come on the podcast. What my is your mother's name? Charmaine. Charmaine, yeah. come to bookshelf be any time <laughs> and also like why aren't there awards for people like your mum mm. you know yeah can we just have one year where the oscars are actually just given to people like your mum yes i would love that i would love that too i think they should i had a very rich bookshelf growing up i never really started buying books until i moved out of my mom's house you know like because i just always had access to like the best at least what i had access to was great but this was a book that i just picked up one day and i was like oh mom what's this she's like oh it's a book i read last semester and i was like oh cool Started reading it and immediately drawn into this story of this girl who's just suffocated by her father. And every, she has three older sisters and um, her mother at the beginning of the novel is still alive. And the, the tyranny of this patriarch is so, it's terrible. And for me, what really like fucked me up was like, you, you watch this whole story. So her older sisters get married for or want to get married for love, they fall in love. Her dad's like, fuck that, you're going to marry these people who are going to make sure that I can have money. So they're all unhappy in their marriages. Um, she is like, I refuse. Um, eventually frees herself from her father, finds like, falls in love with a guy who happens to also be Jewish. It's super cute. They're like, oh, our families are kind of from the same place. It's so profound and I think tells a really interesting story about patriarchy and, mm. and fathers and their kids and and also what I thought was really beautiful, like her portrayal of like turn of the century in New York and Lower East Side, that immigrant community. And mm. um, there's a part of the novel where she has to sell fish because of her dad being a delinquent. <laughs> and um, um, it was like, again, a part of a part of New York history that I wasn't familiar with until until I read the book. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Mm. And it just broke my heart, that novel. Oh, my God. And it always really left an impact on me. It was something I was like, oh, should I make this into a movie? <laughs> you absolutely um, should make it into a movie. But it's, it's, really, it's a really great story. And I think, I think an underrated novel as well. I wonder if there's something about this, um, this story of like liberating yourself from mm. the past mm. as the generation that are supposed to take things on forward that resonates for you because mm. even reading about this book it resonated for me yeah. we've talked a couple of times on this show about how refreshing it is that we're finally having conversations about inherited trauma and epigenetics yeah. and actually sometimes the boundaries because we're using this word now right boundaries even when it comes yeah. to family members which is again mind-blowing to me yeah. that sometimes the boundaries you need to put down to protect yourself in the present day, yeah. unfortunately do involve cutting off elements of your past or 100%, your family yeah. line that yeah. are not going to serve the present. 100%. Does something resonate with you in, oh, for in sure. that space? Oh, goodness, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I find it really interesting now that conversations about boundaries, especially as it relates to your family, mm. because I have friends who have family members parents who are just so toxic mm. and it's like the hardest thing in the world for them obviously to just say actually no um or i watch them sort of try to find like an in-between mm. 
and it's it's really fascinating this generational difference between like ourselves and our parents generation and how we each deal with trauma in the past and and with each other and the expectations we have of each other as as um, parent and child and where those lines get crossed and now that everyone's adults it's like you know it's it's very interesting and like I've had my own reckoning with that too with my upbringing and and again why I love my mother so much that I've been like mom like I felt this is how I felt about this mm-hmm. and the things that have happened and, and who it's made me and mm-hmm. she's like the most wonderful receptive like cool let's talk more about it and it's been like the most <laughs> wonderful thing because I again I have friends who like have attempted that and it's just been like shut down shut down shut down shut yeah. down and I think especially with this like character in this novel it's like sometimes you just have to like say goodbye yeah but as evidence in this novel sometimes you, if you do it's not always a, a goodbye it's not always a like she's she's kind of trapped by this man yeah end of the novel she's literally freed herself she's like found this person she loves she's married she's like has her own job she's doing something she enjoys and then it's like also her entire life is dealt with dealing with him even mm-hmm. when she's like I'm not gonna deal with it it's like people saying you should do this you should do this you should do that like mm-hmm. it's just oh my god it's it's really modern in that way mm. or maybe not modern it's just maybe perennial that experience is perennial absolutely and actually doesn't feel like it falls far from the tree of austin actually mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm so interested to read this this book and delve into this intergenerational immigrant experience and, yeah. and the <laughs> complexity that i know yeah. come with that and you know as well too I have to move on. I don't want to, but I have to. To your fifth and final book choice this week, which is another intergenerational immigrant yeah. story. Hello, Crazy we're blending, yeah. we're moving, <laughs> we're flowing. <laughs> it is White Teeth by Zadie Smith. The novel published in the year 2000 by the British author Zadie Smith focuses on the later lives of two wartime friends, the Bangladeshi Samad Iqbal and the Englishman Archie Jones and their families in London and all of the uh, intergenerational characters that come from this friendship. Zadie went on to win the Women's Prize for her following novel on beauty. Mm. And she's a beacon for me. I'm obsessed with her. We're obsessed with Zadie. (laughs) (laughs) How has this book fallen into your hands and what effect did it have on you? Um, Really quickly, can I just talk about being obsessed with Zadie Smith? Um, I bumped into her in a, like, in a flower shop like five years ago or something. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Zadie Smith. Like, and my mom was like, oh, go say hi. I was like, I'm not going to say hi. Ah, like freaking out. And I don't think I said hi. <laughs> but I think she's an absolute genius. I fucking love her. Yeah. Um, also, not the point, but stunning woman. Stunning woman. Unnecessary. We don't need all of that. We, But we also kind of do. <laughs> we do love it. June Sarpong, who is a guest, also picked this book. And I love it when a book comes up more than once because mm. the books that are going to last forever and yeah. uh, have this strong legacy just will. And we had to take a moment for the iconography of Zadie. Yeah. It helped us. Yeah. It helped me to see pictures of her mm. in association with her work mm, mm. when she was exploding onto the scene yeah. because I personally had not had a, a young British author who looked like me. Yeah. Also, both names begin with Z. What do you know? Hello. Hello. Um, I just hadn't had that. Yeah. And that iconography was very, very important. Yeah. I don't know how I got this book. I really don't. I, th- I think I read it when I was in Prague or I finished it when I was in Prague when I was 19, studying abroad, like doing film shit. And one of the main characters is a Jamaican woman named Clara. Her daughter is first-gen British. Like, her dad is doing too much, <laughs> Archie. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and then Magid and Malad and, like, ah, oh, my, I just, like, oh, I just loved it so much. And, the, and this experience of being an immigrant and having kids in this new country and figuring out who you are and who they should be and them figuring out who they are. And, like, the twins story, McGinnis a lot, like, how they branched off. And mm. and also, there's something so interesting about, like, places that have been colonized and the way they have to split up the family and mm. the children in order to survive. Mm. That, I think, is, like, a legacy of, like, slavery and uh, imposed classism from whoever's colonizing you. And it's awful and it's still happening. Yeah. But, like, that happened, certainly happened in my family. Um, 
people separating. Like, even my mom going to America when she was 19, or my, my dad, who's of Jamaican descent, like, being born and raised in, in England, like, it's all kind of, like, it's a lot. But mm-hmm. this book, to me, was really interesting because of the scope. The scope is so huge, mm-hmm. but it's also so intimate. Mm-hmm. And those things are true of of that experience. Mm-hmm. That's one quote that I always, like, think about. And I remember going to my friend and, and like reading it to him and I'm like, what do you think this means? Because he'd read the book and I was like, this part, like what what does it mean exactly? Like, let's talk about it. And we both were like, ugh. <laughs> but it's right after um Ari sleeps with Magid. And he says, um, it's like it seems to me, he said, as the moon became clearer than the sun, that you've tried to love a man as if he were an island, and you were shipwrecked on it, and you could mark the land with the X with an X. It seems to me it's too late in the day for all of that. And I was like, Sadie. And you have not read that from a piece of paper. Like, Ladies and gentlemen, Mia <laughs> de Costa has imprinted that quote on, on oh, her mind. Like inside it's of my so, eyelids. Yeah. It's so resonant. It's so wonderful to have this opportunity, I realize, to talk to artists like you about the women you feel uplifted by. And that's what this book does so, so well. And that's what Zadie does so well. Yeah, 100%. Is she's like, I know some of you are seeing a wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are bricks within the wall. Mm-hmm. And the way that she writes the experience of of young British people, young yeah. British people of colour, people from London, uh, the diasporic yeah. communities is so specific. And I think yeah. that's why it's hard to read sometimes. Yeah. Because yeah. you haven't been caught out by too many authors in that way. 100%, yeah. I think that's so true. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, there's not been enough opportunity to really get into uncomfortable spaces with black lives in terms of different kinds of stories. Because all storytelling, basically, especially if you live in the States or here in the UK, it's like through a white lens. It's like even if you have a black writer director, the studio head is white or the execs are white or whatever. And that's like neither here nor there. I mean, it's everywhere, but at in this instance, neither here nor there. But I think it's hard because there's this there's desire to to correct mm. for the wrongs that have been done to us, the way we've been portrayed, the way we've been seen, mm. the ugliness with which we've been put into into stories mm. that don't serve us but are quote about us. <laughs> mm. And sometimes I think I think that overcorrection, or not even overcorrection, that correction can't be the only thing that exists. Yeah. And so it's always really striking when I read something like On Beauty or Luster. Or white teeth, mm. or the bluest eye. <laughs> mm. That isn't simple, and it isn't sort of like specifically like look at the gr- how great we are, you know. Mm. That I think it's really like nice, actually, and reassuring. And I'm like, oh, humanity, yes, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. You, we can write about the symptoms mm. and not the cure mm-hmm. all the time, like you're saying. You don't yeah. necessarily have to read and write or direct or act through this pressure of correcting or writing exactly. wrongs. Yeah. You can just be in the space that you're in. Exactly. Yeah. And as Toni Morrison always said, make the personal universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was great. She She's the one who said, like, racism is a distraction. From your work. From your work. Work, bitch. She was like... <laughs> She's like, and I feel like that is so true because it's, it also is in a way like it pushes you into like this thing where you have to consider so much more than just the story you're trying to tell. Like you have to consider so much more than just the black people you're telling the story for, you know, like, yes. or cause like at the same time while I'm like, oh, I love this like gritty, crazy shit. I'm like, I want to see like a really nice rom-com with just like black people in it just or people being. of color or just like, you know, it's like, I want to see like Steven Young and Tessa Thompson, like mm. making out in a movie. <laughs> you I know, full down stop. The road, full, I know, full stop. That's just a personal thing. This is a personal thing <laughs> for all of us. But you know what I mean? It's like, I want to see, like, I want to see the version of that that is, like, just the life that we know as yeah. people in the circles we run in, like, live in life in whatever city. Like, I, you know, I also want to see, like, aspirational mm. views of black people and people of color, but I don't want that to be the only thing that we now are allowed to do. Allowed yeah. being like the operative word because I feel like there is sort of like a 
I think they'd call it the trend. But I think when you're a person of color, the trend is kind of can be limiting to like what they are allowing you to to put into the world. Precisely, Nia. And yeah. do you want to be just a director rather than a black female director? Is there something no, actually. in the experience of ha- sometimes having to be like a spokesperson or a mm. pundit and do the work that you find mm. invigorating or exhausting? Oh, I love being a black female director. And I really, oh, I, love that. I really, really, really love the label <laughs> love that. because I think the, the label is important. And I think because I know like there was a lot of stuff like women directors and they're like, I just want to be a director. And mm. I'm like, that's super cute, but that's never going to happen. Like never, mm. never. And I think it's so lovely. And I, but I respect, I respect the like. I, I know what they're saying. Mm. I know like women who say that and, and directors of color who say that. Who just like, I just want to be a director. I totally get it. But for me, I'm like, I want to be a black female director who makes all these kinds of movies. Yeah. Not just a director who happened to wander into wherever and direct a movie with no context and you know, which is a very new crit way of looking at it. And it, again, it's fine. But for me, I find it most enriching to. To be like black female director who is doing X Y Z, I think it's important that they go together. Yeah, not in terms of necessarily in terms of like that's how you're gonna it's gonna help you read the work because I don't think that is always helpful, but just that like if you're on the wiki page and you're you know just wondering who made what and <laughs> well, absolutely. I think it's nice. Yeah, well, to bring it back to this choice of of, of Zadie as an author her on the inside of the book Mm. made me buy that book (laughs) and you on the dvd no you back of the dvd (laughs) (laughs) what age am i like a thousand me on but like you your 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 face and the art together is as important for me and I'm so glad to hear you say that it's important to you too because I think it's extremely necessary to to ask those questions you know because sometimes we're in positions where we're being interviewed and the questions are just about our experiences of our gender and our race and it's like you guys and you're like guys (laughs) just ask me about the work for a sec it's not up to me to change the world it's the gatekeepers but I'm so happy that you're happy to be an icon in that way too oh well I don't know if I need to be an icon but (laughs) But I know know you mean I know but I I totally feel what you mean because I think I think I remember Barry Jenkins talking about Moonlight and he was like listen I'm so glad that like people love this movie and talking about this movie, but I would have loved people to ask me more about the craft of making the movie. And that movie is beautiful and has craft. And as opposed to just being like, you're black. Yeah. Your mom was addicted to crack. Like, you know, yeah. gay men. Yeah. <laughs> gay black men. You know, yeah. like he and I was like, yeah, man, like we're not just here to serve an external media sort of fed need to be in conversation mm. with things that are outside of just the work I guess mm. and it's it would be nice to also talk about why did you choose that color mm. tell me about your lensing how do you choose glass what was your collaborate collaboration like with James Black so you know what I mean mm. and I totally felt that when he said that because he's someone I think who was very proud to be like a black director and to tell black stories like clearly from his work you can see that but he's also like yo I'm an artist mm. and talk to me like an artist as well mm. so Anyway, I could sit with you all year. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, I, to wrap, will have to ask you the very difficult question that I ask everyone, oh, no. which is to choose one book from the list to take with you into your groundbreaking future. Oh, my gosh. Which one would it be in my... Well, we had Circle of Magic, Mrs. Do- Definitely not Mrs. Dalloway. I don't have time for that stress <laughs> all the time. <laughs> It'd be somewhere between persuasion and... White teeth, I think persuasion because it has a happy ending. But so I guess in a way you can say white teeth does too. But persuasion is very like very cute. I love persuasion for you. Me too. I will happily give you that book and take the rest away in my <laughs> knapsack. Thank you so much, Nia, for joining us. You are so busy and your time is so precious. And the work that you're doing is genuinely needle moving. Oh, and to you, distract Sally. you even for an hour and a half from your <laughs> very important work is um is a real privilege and thank you so much for being so open and honest about yourself as an artist and your experiences and the reading that has 
helped inspire you along the way. I really, really hope that everything that can and should and will happen for you happens. Oh, thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful to be here, and I I feel really honored to be talking to you about books and and art and all this stuff. This has been really, really fun, so thank you. I'm Zowie Ashton, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thank you so much for listening. Hope to see you next time. You've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media.